0: It's very hard to sleep when you're feeling vigilant and anxious, unless you really are sleep deprived for a long enough time. Optimal sleep comes when you feel safe and secure.
1: What does it take to do the impossible? What does it take to level up your game like never before? What does it take for individuals, organizations, for even institutions to achieve paradigm
2: shifting? Nothing is ever the same. Again, breakthroughs. Our mission is to decode the neurobiology of flow and cognitive peak performance. Access the minds of maverick scientists, groundbreaking innovators, and world-leading experts to understand what it takes to achieve ultimate human performance, so you can feel your best, perform your best, and accomplish your boldest goals. I'm your host, Rian Dorris, and together with best-selling author Stephen Kotler, I present to you... Flow Research Collective Radio. Hey there, Rian Darris here with Flow Research Collective Radio and welcome to today's episode. Today we're going to be talking about sleep. Sleep, as you know, no big surprise, is incredibly important to peak performance. And our guest today is Dr. Wendy Troxel. She's a senior behavioral and social scientist and adjunct professor of psychiatry and psychology at the University of Pittsburgh. She's also a licensed clinical psychologist, and she specializes in behavioral treatments for insomnia and other sleep disorders. She's also done a lot of really interesting research into how sleep affects and is affected by our closest relationships, and she's considered the world-leading authority on that topic. Now, if you have read recent books on sleep, you've studied sleep, you've got a sense of the best practices for sleep. Well, you're still gonna find this episode really interesting because we cover some pretty unique things such as why sleeping in the middle of others actually facilitates deeper, better sleep due to evolutionary reasons. We also cover ways to mitigate insomnia and some behavioral approaches there. And also her top tips for sleep, which are somewhat novel and which I think you're gonna really enjoy as well. So you're in for a treat. Now, before we kick things off, a quick announcement from the Flow Research Collective. So we are currently accepting a number of new participants into our flagship peak performance training, Zero to Dangerous, which is designed specifically for high-performing business leaders who are challenged by distraction, self-sabotage, and overwhelmed during our uncertain times. In Zero to Dangerous, you will work one-on-one with one of our PhD-level peak performance coaches. They'll help you optimize your day, your life, your business to ensure that you are gearing yourself towards spending maximum amounts of time and flow. You will also join a community of like-minded peak performers from across the globe, as well as getting access to a curriculum of all of the latest maps and models and peak performance tools needed to take your professional success to the next level. So if that's of interest to you, you can go to getmoreflow.com to apply to Zero to Dangerous. That's getmoreflow.com and you can apply for Zero to Dangerous there. One more time, getmoreflow.com. And there's also going to be a link in the show notes as well. So if you don't want to type that in, you can just go down in the show notes, and you can click the link, getmoreflow.com, and pop through an application to Zero to Dangerous, takes about 30 seconds. We'll chat with you, see if it's a fit. And if it is, great. We may see you inside Zero to Dangerous. But for now, let's jump into the episode with Wendy. Dr. Wendy, welcome to Flow Research Collective Radio. It's great to have you here.
0: Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
2: I'd love to kick us off by talking about sleep as an underestimated or commonly underestimated factor in, in human happiness, wellness, and performance. What are the biggest misconceptions that you see that people tend to have about sleep?
0: Yeah, I think the big misconception uh, people have about sleep that is really harming us is that sleep is something we can sacrifice in the pursuit of all these other lofty goals like happiness and success and performance and productivity. And that couldn't be farther from the truth. Sleep is literally a pillar of health as vital as healthy nutrition and physical activity, um, and actually really supports those other behaviors as well. And it's also vitally important for our, our ability to perform at our best. So this idea that we can sacrifice sleep so that we have more time to do, you know, the important things in our life is just a completely flawed belief that really makes many people in our society suffer greatly. And our productivity is also suffering.
2: What are some of the biggest things that are happening in sleep from a neurobiological perspective? Dr. Andrew Huberman, who's a friend advisor to us, talks about sleep as an active state where lots and lots of things are actually happening, which is obviously quite counterintuitive. So what are some of the things that are occurring neurobiologically when we're asleep. Is this a question about memory consolidation? Well, potentially. I would assume that's one of the things.
0: It's definitely involved in memory consolidation. And, you know, it's true. When I talk to people about sleep who are just learning about it, or, you know, most people, I think we have to really disabuse people of this misconception that sleep is like being in a coma. And I think that that partly feeds this idea that we can just sacrifice it because it's just sort of wasted time. But far from being a sort of dead or static state, sleep is this highly dynamic period in which some parts of our brain are actually more active during sleep than they are during wakefulness. And in terms of like a hot area, probably one of the hottest areas concerns The role of sleep and the interaction with the glymphatic system. Mm -hmm. Now, the glymphatic system is part of um, our body and our brain's ability to sort of flush out toxins that accumulate in the brain. And what we know is that the glymphatic system is more active during the sleep state, even than it is during wake. And so when you're sacrificing sleep, you're not just sort of, you know, missing out on some voided space. You're literally sacrificing a critical opportunity for your brain to flush out these toxins. These toxins are known to be linked with the development um, of Alzheimer's disease, amyloid beta. So there's this really strong um, and exciting research now going on looking at the role of sleep in contributing to Alzheimer's disease and cognitive decline.
1: Is there a particular stage of sleep that is associated with the flushing out of those toxins? Is it throughout the whole experience?
0: That's a good question. I think uh, I'm not the expert on that. I mean, I think that there are specific stages of sleep. I know that there are specific stages of sleep that are critically important for other certain tasks. Mm-hmm. If you were to ask me, I would say probably that glymphatic clearance is primarily during the deeper stages of sleep, but I could be wrong. But in terms of other kind of specific roles of specific stages of sleep and how they relate to other critical functions, you mentioned memory consolidation. Memory consolidation and emotional processing are particularly relevant and occur most during rapid eye movement or REM sleep. And this is actually a topic that I'm very interested in too, because I'm very worried about teenagers' lack of sleep, in part caused by early school start times. And REM sleep disproportionately occurs in the early morning hours, which is exactly the time that we're curtailing, in particular, teenagers' sleep when we wake them up too early. So when we curtail their early morning sleep, and because teenagers have a biologically driven phase delay, meaning that biologically they are designed to stay up later and sleep in later, we are disproportionately and selectively depriving them of REM sleep, which happens in the later part of the sleep period. So for teenagers, it shifted later. So when we wake up teens at 6 a.m., which is literally hours before their biological natural wake-up time, we're selectively depriving them of REM sleep, which, again, is associated with memory consolidation, a critical task of young learners, and emotion processing which is particularly salient right now when we see these rising rates of mental health problems like depression and anxiety. Some have even said that sleep is like an overnight therapy, that when we sleep, we allow our memories sort of to be trimmed so that we sort of, after a good night of sleep, we selectively only recall some of the bad things that have happened in our life. So if you deprive yourself of sleep, you also are depriving yourself of this overnight therapy.
1: So I will ask two questions. The first is, as a general working principle, I've long operated where most of us need about seven to eight hours a night. I know there's a lot of parameters that shift that around, but I've recently heard something that I've never heard before that not actually seven to eight hours a night, it's 70 hours of sleep over every 10 day periods. And there's a stretched out circadian rhythm in the brain or rhythm in the body that requires that. And I can't fact check. I'm asking you because I'm hoping you know.
0: I haven't heard that. It's interesting. And it, it does violate sort of what we think yeah, about this idea that you can't just yeah, yeah. bank sleep and then recover from it. So I, I'd be I, interested in okay. what the research I is. Just,
1: but i don't thought go, but, by smarter people than me because I heard it and I don't know how to validate it. You've worked on a lot on quality sleep in different environments, in low-income communities, you know, and things like that. So one – I'm assuming the major findings are sort of the obvious findings that you would expect from that. But what is surprising, has surprised you the most about researching sleep in a social real world context? It's like the B. Gary Klein of sleep.
0: Yes. Well, if I can give a little context for this, because I think this is really helpful When you think about sleep from an evolutionary perspective, sleep is a decidedly unsafe behavior to engage in. I mean, you're lying down, eyes closed, semi-conscious, really vulnerable to potential threats from the environment. And yet we literally cannot survive without sleep. So how do we as human beings allow ourselves to feel safe and secure enough to be able to fall asleep, even in threatening environments? Well, that's really through our social environments. We're social beings by nature. And so that's a large part why I study how our social environments interact with our sleep. And that extends from, again, our closest connections to the communities in which we live. And we know that there's this gradient in sleep where people of uh, lower income levels have poorer sleep than those at higher income levels. And we also know that there are tremendous racial and ethnic disparities in sleep health. For instance, African Americans and Native Americans have much higher rates of specific sleep problems like short sleep duration and specific sleep disorders like obstructive sleep apnea than non-Hispanic whites. And so why is that? Well, one of the factors that we study at the social level are the communities in which we live. We also know that low-income individuals and certain racial ethnic minorities disproportionately live in disadvantaged neighborhoods that are rife with crime, that lack social cohesion, that lack many of the amenities that are health-promoting, including sleep-promoting, in more advantaged neighborhoods. So some of the things that we've found is, in, in fact... Neighborhood disadvantage, lower income communities. Residents in those communities have higher rates of, you know, sleep problems like poor sleep efficiency, which is an indicator of how restful or restless your sleep is. They also have higher rates of sleep disorders like sleep apnea. One really interesting finding that uh, we're just now publishing is that there are actually policy level interventions in addition to individual interventions that potentially could help to curb some of these disparities. And that includes investing in previously disinvested, racially isolated communities. So we have a study happening in Pittsburgh that's basically a natural experiment. One neighborhood that's predominantly African-American, low-income, is matched with another neighborhood, similar demographics But the intervention neighborhood, as it were, has received substantially more investments, public and private, over the past decade or more as compared to the comparison neighborhood. And what we see over time is that residents who live closer to these investments, so they are sort of getting more of an immediate exposure to neighborhood revitalization, they actually show better sleep profiles over time as compared to residents who are further away from such investments.
1: Is this a safety and security thing, meaning we're getting less norepinephrine production in the brain, and so people are sleeping longer because of the investment, or is it a hope and like a dopamine goal directed assist. Do we have any idea? Is that one of these ridiculous questions that doesn't matter?
0: Not ridiculous at all. The mechanisms are very important and certainly what we're studying. Um, I think that the fact that you mentioned both, you know, plausible, you know, biological pathways like uh, norepinephrine, cortisol is obviously a candidate, but also these psychological pathways like the installation of hope. And honestly, my money is more oh, on just, sort of the psychological pathways that and by the way, they dovetail and, well, and it can be a both. And and most likely a lot of and, ideas and you maybe about oxytocin,
1: because you're getting better social support, because you're getting better neighborhoods, and that nobody thinks about how much we make safety and security concerns based around our social networks. But every time we judge a a challenge or a problem, your brain goes, well, how many people in your posse? And, you know, how close are they?
0: Exactly. And you think about how salient that is right now. We really are social beings naturally, and it is unnatural to be so disconnected. And no wonder why we see rising skyrocketing rates of anxiety and depression, Mm -hmm. because we lack that fundamental social connection. And of course, there are underlying totally plausible biological pathways, including stress hormones, oxytocin, all of these things that are on sort of the spectrum of, you know, how our body responds when we feel vigilant or anxious on the one hand, or safe and secure on the other. And to be able, and when we get back to sleep, again, it's very hard to sleep when you're feeling vigilant and anxious, unless you really are sleep deprived for a long enough time. Optimal sleep comes when you feel safe and secure. It's also why I study military populations, because that's a population that's been trained to be vigilant. That's their job. We need them to be vigilant. And yet it's very hard when service members come home from deployment to sort of unlearn or change that very program vigilance including at night and as a result there's very high rates of uh, sleep problems in, as an intervention
1: in that community we work with a lot of overstressed executives c-level executives super stressed they're hyper vigilant because they're managing huge companies etc cetera, etc cetera. Uh, we do also a lot of work with the military and the servicemen i get there's a difference there in terms of the stress levels but what interventions have you found that's effective in those communities in terms of reducing hypervigilance and restoring quality sleep?
0: Sure. Well, I mean, there's some sleep-specific interventions, which I can discuss, but I think one commonality, and I'm sure this is some of the work you do as well, is, I mean, again, in addition to our social connections, the other thing that is really lacking when we're feeling anxious and vigilant is a sense of control and predictability. And this is so important for sleep as well. So giving people a sense Back of control that otherwise feels so out of control is a huge factor in helping to promote a sense of of safety. And so, how do we give people back a sense of control? Well, sleep is a great inroad to that, actually, because. We sleep better when we follow predictable routines and predictable routines are actually something we can control. So one thing when we work with veteran populations and other populations who are sort of chronically vigilant or anxious, and frankly, any insomnia population, one of the first strategies is to start to regularize sleep-wake routines so that there is at least a rhythm and a pattern to that. Simply starting by having a consistent sleep-wake schedule can really sort of be like an internal metronome helping to sort of calm and soothe and at least give you some control over that. Now, in terms of sleep specific strategies, I'm a clinical psychologist. I provide behavioral treatments for sleep. And we actually know that the behavioral treatments are as effective, more enduring, and then not have the side okay. effects of medication.
2: If you're an entrepreneur, a leader or a knowledge worker and you want to take your professional success to the next level, well then our peak performance training, Zero to Dangerous, may be a good fit for you. Zero to Dangerous is designed to help you harness the power of flow so you can get more done in less time with greater ease and accomplish your boldest professional goals faster. So how does Zero to Dangerous work? There are three main elements. First off, you're going to work one-on-one with one of our performance coaches, all of whom are PhDs in neuroscience or psychology, and they'll help you shift into a sixth gear that you didn't even know you had. Then you'll go through our online learning curriculum over eight weeks and master the science of peak performance. And finally, you'll get weekly access for life to our group coaching calls, which are facilitated by our PhD level performance coaches. If this sounds of interest to you, then just go to flowresearchcollective.com forward slash dangerous to apply for zero to dangerous.com. At that URL, you can fill out an application, book a quick call with our team, and we'll chat with you to make sure that it's a good fit for where you're at right now. So if this is of interest to you, just go to flowresearchcollective.com forward slash dangerous. Pop in your application, takes a couple of minutes, and I know our team would be delighted to speak with you soon.
1: We're not big fans of substances or technologies. I want something that works in any situation, anywhere in the world, at any time.
0: Yes, exactly. Exactly. And and then you don't have to pay back or or have the consequences of whatever benefits you're having to weigh it against all the side effects. So for instance, with veteran populations, the primary types of sleep problems I work with in a veteran population are insomnia and nightmares. And the behavioral techniques I use and that are really evidence-based in these populations, one is cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia which is a technique that um, helps to modify thoughts and behaviors around sleep. That interestingly enough, the types of behaviors people engage in when they have insomnia, often people are engaging in those behaviors as a means to cope with the problem. Like for instance, they start spending a lot of time in bed. And that kind of makes sense because they're kind of chasing after this elusive goal of sleep. So they increase their opportunity for sleep. Well, unfortunately, by increasing the opportunity for sleep and not sleeping much, what ends up happening is they end up failing at the activity that they're so actively striving for, and that doesn't feel good. So we engage a host of cognitive and behavioral techniques to try to change those behaviors that, again, are originally probably coping behaviors, but they're not working. And then when it comes to nightmares, there's a type of treatment called imagery rehearsal therapy, which is really about retraining the brain to have a habit, instead of having the habit of nightmares nightly, to have a habit of less distressing dreams. And we do that by practicing the type of dream content that you would like to have during your waking hours when your brain is actually online and that sort of practice has been shown to actually sort of lead over and relate to less frequent distressing dreams
2: and sort of lesser stress overall. Performance application for that second technique,
1: it's reframing and visualization, right?
2: I think that there absolutely could be
0: some wonderful applications of that. I don't know how much of a research base there is, other than visualization clearly has a strong evidence base for peak performance, but I think just the habit of practicing, um, because for instance, a lot of times, you know, I work with athletes um, and, you know, it's very common to not sleep well before a major event, right? And for, so first of all, I try to normalize that and say, guess what? your adrenaline is still going to carry you through most likely. So you're going to be okay. The stress you have around, you know, is it going to be a perfect night of sleep is simply not serving you. So you will be okay, even if it's not the perfect night of sleep, but helping athletes and others who are, you know, striving for peak performance to try to visualize and practice the type of dream content they'd like to have before a big event, whether it be, you know, an endurance athletic event or a major speech for a major corporation. Like, I mean, it's very common to have anxiety provoking, distressing dreams, if not downright nightmares before such big events. So practicing doesn't have to be about the event itself, but maybe just practicing soothing, pleasurable dream content before such a big event could actually facilitate better sleep. So I think it's a great idea. Do,
1: is there any data that says that trying to sort of pre-program dreams in this way actually shows up in dream content?
0: Well, I don't yeah, do I, any sort of like dream recall uh, work. And yeah, so that, that, that's, that's again outside my lane. What's, what's so interesting to me, it, here's what I know, that when we do work with um, in, in the research on imagery, rehearsal therapy, suggests that it frankly doesn't matter really what the content of the practice dream is. The funny thing is, with many veterans, like I can tell you a, a very common theme um, that I hear over and over of like, a common dream content in the practice dream is fishing. <laughs> it seems to be a very soothing, calming behavior that's very popular among a veteran population. But it honestly doesn't matter what the content of that dream is. And it doesn't have to be sort of changing the nightmare just so it has a happy ending, it can have nothing to do with the original content of the nightmare. And the type of dreamy practice can change over time. And, you know, it can be as sort of out there and bizarre and fantastical as you want it to be. But the key is the practice. And as with any visualization, making that practice as sort of comprehensive of all your senses as possible so the more that you can imagine what the smells are what the sounds are you know for the fishing ones it's it's really um sort of imagining kind of you know putting yourself there and again for many that sort of situation just puts them in a place of quiet and calm and good well-being and that seems to set them up for a better uh, night of sleep um, and fewer nightmares.
1: It does correlate to measures of like fewer nightmares, better stress and health outcomes. That's neat.
0: And and even uh, lower PTSD yeah. symptoms, post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms. So it's a really powerful treatment that, you know, it's really on par with the, the only, there's a medication treatment, which is also effective at reducing nightmares, but it has major side effects. It's a blood pressure lowering medication. So it's clearly not, Recommended for certain people who might already start with low blood pressure. So yeah, we've seen really powerful results. One of the things I like about treating sleep in general is that people tend to get better with good evidence-based treatment, like these behavioral treatments I'm talking about. And for populations that are otherwise treatment resistant, or just, you know, the idea of going and sitting on somebody's, you know, therapy couch is just like not their cup of tea, which is common for many veterans and I've worked with. Sleep. It's kind of this thing that everybody understands that we all kind of want it, even if we sacrifice it. But we kind of know that it's important and we all know what it feels like when you don't get enough sleep. And so it's less stigmatized than some of the other mental health symptoms that, for instance, service members might be experiencing, like depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety. So it can almost be like a gateway treatment um, because people tend to get better. So you already sort of have this rapport and alliance because, oh, I'm sleeping better, I feel better. And we know that when you improve sleep, it does also improve mental health symptoms. But for some who might need a further stage of treatment, it can be this gateway that, oh, that wasn't so awful after all, I'm feeling better. Maybe I'm ready to address some of these other issues that are going on—anger issues, post-traumatic stress, this kind of thing. So that's part of the reason that I find treating sleep disorders uh, so rewarding.
1: Performance, sort of the second thing we have to train with people. We have to train them in recovery. We have to train them in sleep because peak performance is impossible without. It's sort of to us, it's sort of a non-negotiable. Like if you're really interested in peak performance, like you sleep seven to eight hours a night. And I mean, you can get jiggy and measure everything and HRV it out and all that stuff. But seven to eight hours a night is a pretty good watchword as far as like, you know what I mean? I don't think it's all that hard, but God, it's the most effective front end intervention.
0: It is. And for some reason, it's so hard, particularly when working with people who are striving for that peak performance that's exactly where, you know, like I was talking about, that there's this idea that sleep is this so, wasted time and what you're constantly striving for, a, you, know, literally you know, these elite, elite level, level. Skill.
1: When we train, sleep, we train it as a grit skill for, for the exact reason, peak performers, right? It's not, because like it's literally a grit skill. It's like active recovery protocols, whether it's a sauna or mindfulness from the Snaps and Salt bath, soft yoga or walk, any of those things also, those are great skills in peak performance because peak performers don't like to slow down, right? If you're dealing with top athletes or top CEOs or the military or whatever, they're not trained to slow down. And off of this, this is the stat that I've, I've always been trying to get. I've heard various things over the years of, you know, bad sleep has this much impact cognitively when we measure on standard tests of intelligence and creativity, et cetera. Do you know any of these numbers on that stuff that you trust? Have you ever seen anything where you're like, oh yeah, this, I believe, in terms of the impact of bad sleep on cognition, not the overall fact that it really screws up cognition. That I think we're clear. But I, is there any way of measuring it?
0: I think there absolutely is, and I mean uh, the stat that comes to mind because you know I'm really familiar with the literature is again in teenagers. And you don't need a stat, by the way, to know that when you don't sleep well, yeah. your cognition suffers. All of us have experienced this when we you know haven't slept well when we're sort of burning the midnight oil. In pursuit of, again, more productivity. And then we're staring at our computer completely like brainless in a cloudy mind. We can't remember things. We can't articulate ourselves well. These are real experiences that are fairly ubiquitous. But yes, there is great data on the impact of sleep loss and, and sleep disturbance on cognition. In teenagers, I know, for instance, that we've seen That when schools start later, so giving teenagers the opportunity to sleep more, we see an increase of about two to three percentage points in standardized test scores in math and reading, with even more profound effects for more uh, disadvantaged learners. So it suggests that, again, a policy-level intervention, in this case of delaying start times, could have a measurable and demonstrable impact on Teenager students sleep and particularly for disadvantaged learners. And so it could actually have an impact on reducing the achievement gap. So again, we all can experience it and we know what it feels like when we have that sleep deprived, cloudy brain. But there's also very good well, data. Wendy, to one of the it.
2: questions Stephen historically has least liked that he gets about flow is what's the first thing I do Monday morning? Or what are the first three things I do Monday morning to get into flow? There's no answer to that question. Mm-hmm. are yeah, not real question. But I was going to ask you the equivalent for sleep. So, you know, what are the three, maybe it's five, maybe it's 10 things that people should do Monday night to improve their sleep immediately? What are the kind of highest leverage action items?
0: Okay. So the first thing is to sort of prepare for the next day. I think in terms of preparing for your flow for sleep, it all starts Sunday night, right? Because Sunday night is when we start you know, worrying about the week ahead and many people have their worst night of sleep on Sunday night. So the first thing to do is to sort of prepare in advance of sort of what your week looks like. And, you know, for instance, if you're going to work out in the morning, which I recommend um, uh, that you set out your workout clothes in advance and you're ready to go. The second thing when it comes to wake up time is that, you know, avoid the snooze button. The delaying of the inevitable is just sort of prolonging agony. Many people are not natural morning people, and that's okay. So it's okay if you don't relish the mornings. But the more you press snooze, the more you're just sort of, you know, again, delaying the inevitable and experiencing agony instead of just getting your day going. So it's like ripping off a Band-Aid. The best thing to do is as soon as the alarm goes off, get your feet on the floor and start your day. And the third thing I would do to sort of start the flow with regard to your sleep is always make your bed in the morning. Why I say that is because you really want to sort of like close the door on the previous night of sleep because maybe you didn't sleep so well the night before. But whatever it is, bring some closure to it. It's over. You start the day by sort of closing that chapter in your life. You're also setting your bed up to be the haven that you need it to be the subsequent night. And you're really sending the signal to the brain that, okay, now is the time to be awake and alert and to go about my day. And I have this haven waiting for me at night which is actually going to, again, improve uh, my productivity and well-being by allowing me to restore. Oh, so you're really oh, setting oh, yourself oh, oh. up for by, the week. By making the that lowering way. cognitive load.
1: I mean, you're closing a chapter and you're lowering cognitive load for what's coming later, correct?
0: Yes, absolutely. And all those steps that I suggest, like preparing in advance and just hitting the alarm and getting your feet on the floor. You don't need to do any sort of mental cogitation over this. Just do it. It's not going to be fun. Many people are not going to enjoy the mornings. So take the thought process out of it. Just do it because that's what you do. And setting a consistent wake-up time is the final thing I would really recommend because a consistent wake-up time, again, sort of reduces cognitive load. You don't have to be perseverating over, oh, can I sleep in? Do I have to wake up earlier? What could I get done if I work really fast? No, just wake-up time is consistent. And it's also important because wake-up time is the single most important cue for setting your internal biological clock or your circadian rhythm, which in turn sets you up for sleep success
2: that subsequent night. One of the questions we love to ask Wendy researchers is, we call it the research genie question. So if, if you had the ability to instantly answer any big research question at the click of a finger, what would that research question be?
0: Oh my goodness, I should have to prep for this. Um, I guess I'm very interested in why at a deeper level, why the experience of sleep is so different for men and women. We know definitely we have some indications of sort of hormonal differences, other biological differences, sociological differences, sociocultural differences. It's such a fascinating area. And there's a lot of sort of paradoxes in the literature. Women tend to have are at higher risk of having insomnia. And yet when we measure women's sleep objectively, women tend to sleep longer and better than men. So there's this, again, sort of disjunct between the objective and the subjective. And again, it clearly relates also to our role, our sociocultural roles. And I think that we just we still don't have a great understanding of what's really driving that. And because I study couples, um, you know, in heterosexual couples, I think that those, you know, both biological sex differences and um, sociocultural gender differences really play a role in some of the challenges that couples face when sharing a bed.
1: I've got a weird question. Um, I wrote, this was in my book, Small Furry Prayer, and I apologize for this slightly longer introduction. My wife and I run a dog sanctuary and we have for a very long time. We do hospice care and special needs care, and we have a very... Our healing methodology is extremely successful. It's very very evolutionarily based. I think about things in terms of evolutionary psychology a lot. So we live... Dogs and humans co-evolved to live in small groups of humans, big groups of dogs. So we often have... We live family-style with an enormous pack of dogs, and we have for a lot of years. I also travel a lot. So one of the things I noticed is that when you... Coval dogs and we outsourced a lot of our they hear better, they smell better. So they became in a lot of communities our uh, danger signals, right? They were our burglar alarms essentially. They kept us safe, right? And so I noticed that like when I sleep at home or when I when I travel, like the second night I travel, when I'm sleeping with my dogs, I can outsource all the safety and security stuff. And I sleep so much better. But like the second night I travel in a hotel. All of the Nora, but everything comes back line. I'm hyper vigilant. It comes back like a like a ferocious wave. I'm assuming the same thing sort of happens in Navy in like Navy SEAL communities and places where you're like have a lot of other people to outsource that too. One is there a name for that particular thing at all? I just find it hmm. super interesting. I find it really weird. it's always the second night and I can't tell is that a biological thing or is that a Steven thing I have no idea if this is like a real thing in the world or this is just something that just happens to me but I'm the timing of it always my second night in hotel
0: interesting I think the timing for you might be somewhat idiosyncratic however I can't say for sure well we do know that there's in general in sleep, this thing called a first night effect, which is generally when you measure people's sleep, particularly in an unfamiliar environment, we see more sort of changes in sleep in the first night as the person is just sort of getting used to an unfamiliar environment. And we typically think of the second night as being the sort of more natural pattern of sleep. But as you were speaking, I was actually thinking that there's an image um, that I often use in talks um, that I'm giving of, I think they're mallard ducks, and they sleep like in, I, I, whether it's a circle or a line, and the ones at the outer edge are sleeping with one eye open. And it's really this sort of communal sleeping environment where the sort of the outer edges are responsible, I mean, that, like, you know, the pack of
1: dogs. The dogs um, sleep, changing. they do that. Like my wife and I'll sleep in the middle and the dogs will find out, yeah. some will get in the middle, but they, it's concentric rings. So, like the biggest dogs and the most dogs who stay awake get the outer rings always.
0: Exactly. In my book, I study some of the history of sleeping arrangements. um, That again, back in the Middle Ages and before, it was always communal sleeping. And there's a you know very old Italian philosopher who said, you know, when you're sleeping, get thee in the middle because being in the middle, and these are in these communal beds which could be shared by family members, servants you know, the casual passersby through a village, um, they would often, you know, share a communal bed because frankly, people didn't have the resources for multiple beds, let alone bedrooms. And the middle of the bed was the safest place. It was the warmest place. Uh, So I think that there is sort of this evolutionary piece that we still hold that for many people, we prefer to sleep together. But that's not true for everybody. And that's, again, what I cover in my book is that for many people, they have challenges while sharing a bed with a partner. And, you know, and that's, there's a lot of stigma against sleeping apart. But sleep research has really only recently started to study sleep as it actually occurs in couples. And so people often feel torn between, well, I feel like I should be sleeping with my partner, but I'm not sleeping well. And then what I do? What, what do I do? So, um, that's a lot of uh, what mm-hmm. I'm currently One, studying.
1: Give us the title. Give us the launch date. Tell us how we can support the book because it sounds freaking amazing. I want it. I want six copies. Uh,
0: the book is called "Sharing the Covers: Every Couple's Guide to Better Sleep." My hope is that it is, you know, the guide for couples understanding, you know, the challenges that you may face um, when it comes to the shared sleep experience. Maybe it's that one partner has a sleep disorder or it's the entrance of children into the bedroom, whether it be, you know, humans or the furry kind or different sleep-wake patterns. Some of us are larks, some of us are owls, but you know, what happens when two share the same nest? So all these issues that couples experience, and by the way, this is about a third of our coupled existence, and yet relationship researchers really haven't paid attention to sleep. And sleep researchers really haven't paid attention to the coupled nature of sleep for most adults. And so that's really sort of where my book sits. And I cover the science. And I also, because I'm a clinical psychologist, have a lot of clinical case studies and frankly, Besides my um, my clinical case studies, anytime I go anywhere and people learn the type of work that I do, I have lots of stories. Everybody wants to tell me about, you know, their challenges sleeping with a partner. So, so I've got a lot of good anecdotes to draw from and then strategies to help couples overcome the common challenges that many couples are facing. And, and also to just start having a dialogue about what it means to share a bed. And, you know, is it working for you? or not working for you? And if it's not working for you, how do you as a couple engage in healthy and honest communication so that both partners' needs are met and nobody ends up feeling rejected or abandoned?
1: I'm wondering, I got to ask one more geeky question, <laughs> Rand, then, then you get ask a final question, and let her go. And I, I'm, I'm guessing there's no answer for this, but I'm just a little curious. This isn't exactly our work, but there's really interesting work out of the fitness area where certain kinds of training is better for certain kinds of cognition right so strength training seems to correlate better with i want to say this is going to be wrong but it's something like spatial puzzle solving things like that like you and they're really weird they're right. not what you expect and there's a bunch of conflicting research i'm wondering if we are going to start seeing weird correlations between like once we start studying something like how do we sleep better as a couple and really get nitty-gritty on the research, certain aspects of – I'm sure there's certain aspects of cognition that get worse when we sleep badly as a couple. Like it's got – and it could be very individual. I, I don't know. That was my question. Do you think that is real or do you think I'm reaching on the effects of your research?
0: No. I mean, I think it's very possible. I mean, what what comes to mind is, first of all, we know that there's, again, this sort of contradiction a little bit between how people experience sleep as a couple in the existing studies and, you know, subjectively and how their sleep looks when we measure it objectively. And that contradiction is that objectively, some studies that have measured couples while sleeping together versus apart The small existing research has generally used actigraphy, which is, you know, basically a motion sensor measuring movement during sleep. And the small existing literature using that particular type of methodology shows that couples actually sleep worse when sleeping with a partner versus sleeping apart. And yet when you ask those same people, do you prefer to sleep with your partner or do you prefer to sleep apart? They actually subjectively experience better sleep when sleeping together. And I think that definitely gets back to that evolutionary thing. But there's actually some very new data that showed that used a different type of objective measurement of sleep, which is really the gold standard sleep assessment, polysomnography, when we actually are able to measure brain activity and different stages of sleep. And in that very new, and it's a small study, they actually found that um, when couples slept together, there was actually an increase in REM sleep. Um, the percentage of REM sleep as compared to nights when couples slept alone.
1: Did they attach quality metrics to that at the back? Life satisfaction or engagement or anything like along those lines?
0: I am not recalling that in that particular study. Uh, I would have to um, go back. I think the... First off, there was Drew's maybe. But I mean, so I think that they were primarily focused on sort of these um, sleep architecture outcomes and was interesting, was the first to really show that couples got more REM sleep while sleeping together than apart, which suggests that it could yeah, have I benefits mean, um, for, for sure, cognition. For
1: learning. That's interesting. Okay.
0: Yeah. And then when you pair that with, again, there's not a one-size-fits-all approach for every couple. So I'm certainly not, I never prescribe sleep patterns for anybody. What you do in your bedroom has got to be a couple-level decision. You know best. But making sleep a priority as a couple is truly a cornerstone of a healthy relationship because we all function better as partners when we're well-slept. We're more empathic. We're better communicators. Our moods are better regulated. We're able to think um, better and more clearly. So all of these things are truly the foundation of healthy relationships. And so... You know, if you're not going to sleep for yourself, then do it for your partner.
1: Nobody talks about sleep as a core component of emotional intelligence, but I'm listening to you and thinking about all the things that get crushed with lack of sleep, and it's like it's an emotional intelligence skill at this point.
0: Oh, I would say it's a core piece of emotional intelligence. I think the the research on sleep and emotion regulation and mood disruption is very robust, and it's... um. You know, frankly, again, in the school start times work that I do, to be honest with you, that area started out as an academic issue for learners, which it absolutely is, because we know that when kids sleep more, they're better learners. But it's really so much more than that. It's a public health issue, particularly related to these mental health outcomes that are so robustly tied Mm. to our sleep. The new book is available Mm. now. Yes. Thank you for asking. (laughs) It's going to be released April, 2021 by Hachette Go. Pre-order
1: now, people. Pre-order now. Great. Thanks.
2: Appreciate all the the knowledge and wisdom. It was really fun to talk to you both. Appreciate that. All the best. If what you've heard on Flow Research Collective Radio has been helpful... Please consider doing us a solid and leaving us a review on Apple, Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you are listening to this. Reviews help us connect to a wider audience so we can get these peak performance principles out to more people.